Uh, welcome to the AdaptX podcast, where we have conversations with individuals who are building accessible businesses, advocating for inclusion, or excelling in adaptive sports. Our intention is never to speak on behalf of those with disabilities, but provide them with a platform to share their ideas and insights to help us make the world more accessible. Today, we are joined by Sarah Skeels. Sarah has a BS in exercise physiology from the University of Virginia, where she focused on adaptive exercise and a master's degree in public health from George Washington University. Sarah is a researcher, OT faculty at Tufts University, and senior teaching associate in the School of Public Health at Brown University. Sarah is heavily involved as both an athlete, coach, and board member in various adaptive sports organizations. Sarah, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Brendan. It's awesome to be here. Uh, we first met about three years ago when uh, one of my favorite interns of all time, uh, shout out Dennis Peary, had you as an advisor for his doctoral <laughs> had, yep. uh, had you as an advisor for his doctoral capstone project at Tufts. Uh, his project revolved around making recreation lawn games specifically more accessible for people with cerebral palsy. Um, I really enjoyed every meeting as we had it gave me the opportunity to, to learn from you, and I'm glad we've stayed in touch over the years. So, yeah, me too. I'm I'm really happy. You've been the driving force in this staying connected and I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, that's a very kind way of saying I continue to pester you over the years. <laughs> um, you were a Division One swimmer at UVA studying uh, exercise phys. Uh, I read that you had a focus on adaptive populations. Yes, uh, I did. What encouraged you to do so? Because this was before your SEI. Yes, it was way before all of that. I was young and I was uh, introduced to disability pretty early on in my life uh, with, I was in a Girl Scout, um, I was in a Girl Scout group uh, a long, long time ago, and we had a person in our troop who um, lived with a disability, and it was a, at the time, you know, when you're a little kid, you seem to think uh, they don't know anything different of anybody, and a lot of people treated her differently, and I never understood that, and um, I always hung out with her because she was a really nice person, and I helped her out. You know, she needed some help doing some things, and, and I just sort of became more aware of the differences that happen sometimes uh, when someone with a disability shows up in a space that, especially back then in the 70s, uh, uh, disability was really institutionalized at the time. Uh, you know, parents were told to put their kids in institutions, and we had a very, uh, you know, it, it wasn't like it is now, thankfully. So I think I, think I carried that with me uh, into school, and when I could take adaptive, I started taking more adaptive fitness and adaptive, uh, phys- you know, phys- just adaptive everything I could that was adaptive that was labeled adaptive at the time and uh and it just was something that was really interesting to me because it's it's not just the basics Brendan it's applying this is what I love about working with disability it is it is it is unique it is not standard and so you have to know your stuff because then you have to apply it to a non-standardized person and figure out uh how they're going to work Right. And how this is going to work for them. And, and I find that it's like a puzzle. It's like um, organic chemistry, you know, uh, th- this this puzzle you put together that can turn out to uh, that ends up in this um, empowered person in the end. If you're if you're talking about adaptive sport and recreation. Yeah, we talk about how it's always really important to have a strong foundation and exercise phys or strength conditioning as a whole, though. So I guess it gives you all those different puzzle pieces to assemble. I think some people get into that space because they're interested in disability or they want to be an advocate for disability. But you also have to do your due diligence of 
really knowing your stuff from an exercise science standpoint because uh, that's yeah. what that's what allows you to kind of creatively apply it to these unique situations but i think working with adaptive populations makes people better coaches for all populations and that's something we try to espouse with our course yeah it really uh you you you, ha- you have to have really strong observation skills and really understand how body systems work and lever. I mean, the body's fascinating. And anyway, you know, uh, I was exposed to disability again as an undergraduate student when I decided to uh, work as a physical therapy assistant at the UVA Medical Center at the time. It's now blown up into this huge thing. At the time, it wasn't as big as it is, but I was then exposed to other people, you know, uh, who are challenged in all these spaces. And I was just like, why, why, you know, why, why does it have to be so hard for you? And it's not as hard for me. Not, not, I'm not talking about movement. I'm talking about access to the ability to move. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What were your, um, (laughs) exactly. At the time, did you have specific career goals, like a, a specific environment that you want to be in or industry that you want to be in? I, I really wanted to go into rehab, uh, I wanted to be a physical therapist and I wanted to go into rehab. Uh, physical rehab is, um, you know, uh, challenge. And <laughs> I didn't get to do it as a clinician. I got to do it as a patient. So it's all kind of weird in my case, but, um, but I think, uh, you know, my, my experience now isn't any, is probably more profound than it would have been if I'd just become a physical therapist and moved on in my life been one just of one of many people instead i have this really weird uh this really weird experience of life and um i'm in it to win it so whatever that, that's a theme that i have heard from some of the other uh guests that we've had with SEI is almost talking about how their life is better after their industry um sorry after their injury and yeah. um so so you've kind of found that to be the same right it's, it's given you more purpose and kind of a unique path yeah, it's a unique, and I wouldn't say, you know, I don't know, you know, you, you don't know what life is going to be on, you know, you only know your experience. So I can guess what could have happened, and I don't know the paths I would have taken. I can only guess about that. I know what I've done in my life, and I think what my injury brought me is this idea that, that um, you know, there's one life we have here. There's one. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is for real, and... Uh, wanting to live it as much as possible um, is, became what I wanted to do. And I don't know if I would have had that, that same verve uh, and motivation had I not had a traumatic experience that took away what I thought was me, you know? And, and then I, I had to learn that there's a lot more to me than just my physical self. Um, and, you know, and then we want to tie it back into all ex- physical activity and, and recreation and, and fitness you can't be your best self uh, if you can't be there. And I think, you know, like everybody is an athlete at this point. When you are a wheelchair user in this world, especially in the snow, etc., you are an everyday athlete. Whether you want to be or not, to navigate the world as a wheelchair user, you have to figure things out all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And we can talk a little bit about uh, barriers to accessibility, uh, specifically a little later on, you were initially accepted into PT school and then that offer was rescinded because of your injury. What was, what was that experience like? And have you encountered a lot of ableism kind of in the industry? (laughs) Uh, yeah, 
So the industry, our world is is ableist. So we have to start with that and that understanding. And that's it's um, it's something that's slowly changing. But we just live in this world right now where phys- physicality is highly valued, and. Um, those of us who are physical but present ourselves differently, i.e., maybe as in a wheelchair, maybe somebody using crutches and a, um, you know, a prosthetic limb, any of those spaces, you know, we all of a sudden can't. The, the word can't is attached to us so quickly, uh, just at glance from somebody. Um, but the, I think, I think the. The whole, my whole initial career trajectory or my, my hopeful path um, ended in a way that was um, very upsetting to me, uh, you know, to deny me, to say to me, uh, and this was back in 1990 before the ADA was really a law, so I, and, and I, I was so caught up in rehabilitating myself that I really, I bought into it. No, I can't be a physical therapist because all I was thinking about was all the things that I had done or that I had seen being done in rehab and was like, how am I going to do these things? And, um, you know, now looking back 30 some odd years later, uh, I could have figured it out. I would have been a very good clinician, but that wasn't my path. And, And I had to be open to the fact that maybe, you know, up until that point, the world had worked for me. You know, I have the right color skin. I had the right, uh, you know, I had, I was very, you know, I was talented in a sport. I was able to just access things all the time. I had a lot of privilege and I didn't understand all that privilege. Uh, And (laughs) my my spinal cord injury certainly exposed me to what privilege means and um, what it doesn't mean. And I think it was my first time to come up against that and, uh, and, we weren't using language like that back in the 90s. Uh, but I think that um, learning how to fit into a society that wasn't, didn't want me and didn't value me, um, and especially healthcare, which is about as in most ableist place you can be, unfortunately, is in healthcare. And I would say that that's just, it's just that because I think rehab is like you have, and medicine, it's all about trying to be as normal as you can as far as whatever this normalized standard person is that you're this profile. And, um, and I knew I was never going to get to that. And so what I eventually did was realize I can live outside the lines. Nobody has any, unfortunately, nobody has any expectations for me. I have high expectations for me. And I had to realize it all had to come from me because I could just have given up. I could have just stopped. I could have said, you're right. I can't because I can't because and this happens all day, every day for lots of people. I can't because dot, dot, dot. And, and that because dot, dot, dot is the thing. And um, what does that really mean? And I had to look into that. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that that's an excuse. I'm just saying it was something I had to look more deeply into. What does that mean? And at the time, I was in my 20s. I wasn't ready to give up. I was ready to start and fight and, and push. Yeah. And, um, and so I think it was actually in the end, it really pulled out my my strong inner athlete and and uh, and helped me my, my my inner athlete really helped me move through a lot of of frustration and disappointment and um, into a better space. That reminds me of a paper uh, from Alan Jetty, who I know you're familiar with, called "The Paradox of yeah. Physical Therapy," where he talks about yeah. how like the physical therapy industry 
is claiming to value diversity while also establishing these pre-established norms that everyone is supposed to move towards. And so that kind of opens up the debate, debate's probably too strong of a word, but between like the medical model versus the social yes. model of disability. Yes. Um, and while I do think it's essential to adopt the social model, that's the first module that we introduce in the course that we teach to, uh, to fitness professionals. But mm-hmm. um, I guess, where do you think both kind of fall or what value do both the social model and the medical model have in a highly medical field like physical therapy? Yeah, you know, I just gave a I just gave a lecture to the Brown the uh, let's see um, the Warren Alpert the Brown Medical School uh, third year class and it was about the medical and the social model and what does it even mean they don't learn you know I think I think it's I don't know the exact so I'm, I I'm, I want to make sure the audience understands I don't have the exact number here, but less than 30%, I think, of medical schools actually have a curriculum for disability. And my, my guess is that's very similar in physical therapy as well. I didn't go to PT school. I didn't go to medical school, but I've been involved in, in working on the curriculum at, in, at the Brown Medical School to try to at least introduce disability a little bit more to them. And we this was what it, we, I was talking about was, the medical model and the social model, and um, and what does it mean in medicine? And in my opinion, you know, someone with a disability uh, has develops their status quo, whatever that status quo is in their life. So they initially, you you know, if you acquire a disability like I did, um, you know, you have the, the the health management issues you have to learn how to get through, and and you create your okay. This is how I manage my bladder, and I, I know when I have a UTI or I know when I don't. So I know when to seek medical care because I am out of whack. Where am I out of whack? And so so when my symptoms flare up and I want to get back to my status quo of my general health. Um, that's when medical model helps because we can figure out, you know, what are the symptoms? You know, I go to an expert, a healthcare provider who I will demand works with me, not to me, not at me, but with me to figure out, um, what, what is feasible for me? What is reasonable for me? What can I do? You know, and then I go back to my social model, which is I'm chugging along. This is my, this is who I am. I'm moving along in my day. My disability is very, um, I don't want to say the word control is a dangerous word in my opinion, but um, things are, are, are relatively manage, manageable and I'm doing fine. And in that case, I don't, I may not go to a physician or a, um, a, an OT or a PT to make anything better. I might be going to there or to cure me to cure something because that's not going to happen. Um, I might, but I might like need to uh, get get back to where I was, you know, or or get a little bit stronger. But those are my goals, not somebody else's goals for me. Those are my things that I want to do. So I see the social and medical model all it can work together, um, and and I don't think we need to. Uh, attack the medical model, but I think we need to be aware of when is it useful and when is it a barrier. And, and unfortunately, uh, it ha- that has to be driven by the person, by the, but w- when we enter healthcare, we'll call patients, which I've never understood because 
Um, it does require significant patience, <laughs> a different spelling uh, to be a patient. Um, but when we're out in the regular world, I'm not a patient. I'm a human being. And I don't like being called a patient when I'm not in medical care. So it's just, it's when the medical model comes out into the real world and starts walking around and uh, putting a lot of um, unnecessary, and I'm gonna use the word barriers again, or challenges uh, in front of somebody for really no good reason, in my opinion, for no good reason, other than, well, you're different and you're different in a way that, that isn't valued. And so you therefore are inherently um, never going to get to what we want you to get to, we, we being um, the medical world saying, well, physiologically, this is perfection and, and, or standard, and you're not, never going to get there because you have a spinal cord injury. And, I'm, and I said, and I say to that, well, then what's my standard as my, as my person? That's more my responsibility to figure out what my standard is. And then when I'm outside of my standard, that's when I can go seek assistance and if it has to be med- medical. Yeah. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and towards that last point, like the benchmark or the standard, um, I'm interested in that, not from uh, not from the lens of like GMFCS, like cerebral palsy, where like I have to label you at a certain level, but more so right. as a means of evaluating the efficacy of like my training. So right. if we, if we right. have a client with an SEI, um, what do I need to measure? Uh, where is progress shown? Uh, what can I expect? Is the goal completely yeah. client-driven? Yeah. Like, does it just depend on what you want to accomplish? Um, right. Are there things that you don't know that mm-hmm. a medical professional should maybe know that they should yes. educate you on, or are you always doing the educating? So I know right. you. I know you helped develop the sci-fi. Um, yeah. is it, can you maybe? explain that or other assessment because i I can connect us back to alan jetty again who's one of my most favorite humans in the world (laughs) and um and i was so bummed when he retired but he has a right to go raise um raise vegetables and build beautiful wooden things and raise bees and make honey (laughs) and all kinds and chickens and all the things he's doing now but uh so the sci-fi uh has was developed to uh as a different way of measuring um, ability, a capability, I'm going to change, not ability, capability in those with spinal cord injury. Before that, you had the, the FIM and, and, or you had Asia. And those are two benchmarks, but they were created by able-bodied people, able-bodied, very, in, very high-level researchers, but none of them living with disability, none of them living with spinal cord injury. So how do you know what the experience is? How do you really know what somebody's capability is? The way spinal cord injury is set up and taught is, you know, you have your your spinal cord and you have where your lesion is and, and, you know, you have a cervical lesion at C6, let's say. So then the thing everybody said, well, then you're never going to do this instead of thinking about, well, what can you do with biceps and triceps? What can you do with that? What does that look like? And um, so we set out to build, to create a more sensitive, 
uh, measure of how a spinal cord injury might impact somebody. And um, I went around and interviewed millions of people with question banks, uh, prompt banks, and, and got their opinions, people with lived experience. Their opinions on these questions, you know, somebody who uses a power chair in the old measure, not the sci-fi, the, the old measure would say, well, if you use a power chair, you are inherently dependent. And that's just not true. I know a lot of people who are extremely uh, capable power wheelchair users. You know, it takes a lot of skill to use a power chair. <laughs> a lot of able-bodied people don't understand that. Um, you know, sip and puff is really hard. You got to remember what to do when, or you're putting holes in walls and running into people and all of that. So I, I, I don't think it's an equitable to apply the same scale and say, well, which is in the hierarchy of the scale has always been, if you can walk, you are now, you have now reached the apex of capability and, and yay you, congratulations. And, and I was, I said to Alan, this isn't right. You can't tell me that I'm not independent because I can't pop up a 10 foot curb. You know, I'm being exaggerating here, but so I, I argued with him about this idea of walking being, and not just Alan, the team, um, of, of this idea of walking being the epitome of what someone with a spinal cord injury, you know, the judgment of, of your abilities and your capabilities. And, um, and he listened and he, uh, you know, agreed. And that's why we developed this measure the way we did, because it was much more comprehensive of the... Um, the lived experience of those with spinal cord injury. Yeah, I think um, something like two and a half billion people use assistive technology, whether it's glasses or wheelchairs. And I don't mean to compare the two in any way. Oh, obviously, no, obviously it's so. drastically different. But like, do those scales that devalue assistive technology, like that if you're using a manual wheelchair, then you're lesser than that person who's using an exoskeleton to walk. And then right. that, that person that uses a power chair is less than that person that uses a manual wheelchair. Right. Um, right. Should, 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 should walking always be the goal? No, <laughs> I can't walk. Yeah. And I'm okay with it. I, I let that go. For, some, for other people, that might be their goal. I, I, I just think that we have to be really caught, you know, Sometimes you get this idea that because you're walking, you're therefore have no problems and you have nothing. And that's the answer. It's not the answer. I'm, you're a walking person, Brendan. Is, is your life perfectly perfect because only because you can walk? You know? Yeah. Yeah, because I think I, I sometimes see people invest so much of their time resources into that pursuit and obviously not diminishing that effort in any way. I'm sure... I don't know how I would cope as someone who loves running and stuff. Yeah. If I was ever in that same situation, I would probably be really frustrated that I lost the ability to run um, yeah. uh, in a bipedal manner. But um, yeah. yeah, I think I, I see a lot of people invest a lot of their time and energy into that pursuit and money, of walking. Money, money, money. Yeah, yep. lots of money. And you know, I um, I'm sitting here talking to you and I have to I want to be clear with the audience that I'm I'm speaking for myself. I'm not trying to speak for the entire spinal cord injury population here that is not um who I am. I'm not representing, you know, 200 you know 400,000 people. Um but this idea of of you know every I was injured in 1990 and every 10 years 
something big comes like you're gonna walk again we did this with rats and i'm like mm-hmm. if i was a rat right now brendan i would be so set mm-hmm. it would be great um but i don't want to be a rat i'm a mm-hmm. human and uh, and and i don't know when we're gonna get to this walking thing but i can say that those of us with spinal cord injury still can work on our health <laughs> we still can be healthy we still can be um contribute to the world we still can uh engage and and i think to be told from the get-go you can't engage because of who you now inherently are is the problem yeah maybe yeah maybe on the topic of that transition to uh sport and physical activity what was that experience like because you went from being an elite athlete to then being an elite like not active athlete <laughs> well well you went to a different avenue that yes. now you're uh, you're in paralympic sports um yeah. so do you think like that transition was harder do you think an acquired injury has oh, a different so- social emotional toll than a chronic I, I, yeah i think the difference is now after having been out in the world as long as i have as a disabled person with all the experiences i've had in the world i think it i think for someone who has an acquired disability you can check back into when you didn't have a disability and you can check back into that and and the struggle i think that somebody with an acquired disability has is um who am i now who am i now if i don't know how to and i've always i've always thought that um, really the, the, the key to navigating disability is sort of like, um, thinking about how do I express myself now? I'm, I'm, I don't know. That was my challenge is I was this very physical person. I defined myself very physically. And then that was at the time, the way I looked at it, it was, it was taken away. It was gone in a minute, like gone, like there was no like warning. There was no, um, class ahead of time to say, okay, well now you're going to be paralyzed and here's a wheelchair and this is how you, you know, none of that. You have to figure all that stuff out. And I think the journey is very important, but the journey is, 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 um, is just that it's a journey and you have to figure that out of like, who am I and how am I going to express myself now, uh, in this world? And so as an athlete, when I was, when I first was navigating rehabilitation, I was in it. Like I was the best rehab patient you could be because I'm an athlete, right? So tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Always was pushing my therapist, pushing, pushing, pushing because of where I wanted to go. And they worked with me, which was really, which was really nice um, and helpful. And so I think my rehab experience was was not as hard as as somebody who wasn't an athlete because um, I knew how to work my body, and and I wanted that because that felt like that felt like me, yeah. like I was tapping into me. And then, um, you know, moving forward from that was okay. Uh, you know, I was an avid avid cyclist. I was a runner. I was a swimmer. I was a triathlete. And so, how do I get back to some of that? And at the time, you know, adaptive sport was really, really in the, not as big as it is now. And they had just developed hand cycles. And I, you know, the internet, there was no internet in 1990, 1991, too. And so I wrote, I, I wrote letters 
to all these places I could find in the library <laughs> that that offered adaptive sport because I I was you know I was like where can I find a bike I just wanted a bike even though I had I didn't have the use of my right arm at the time but I was like I am going to find a bike and I'm going to ride it because you know and so I got this bike it was old and heavy as a shadow mock three or something is a really old heavy upright hand cycle but and I could barely ride it but I was doing it and it was really important to me and that feeling of of like tapping back into that inner like inner athlete I don't know how to describe it right now but um, tapping into that was really helpful for me and it made me feel more like me so then I thought how am I going to find more of these experiences and um, what got me into sailing was just fun but then what got me into competitive sailing was that because of my whole makeup um i don't i don't um classify well in many many sports um but in sailing i classify well meaning i actually classify with uh, um in a, with to be able to compete on an on an even level with everyone else whereas like if i was skiing they don't really have a category for me um if i'm swimming they don't really have a category so um i and and i'm not going to push i'm not going to wheelchair racing isn't in isn't something i can do so it's not something i i've ever really investigated much in other than give it a try and realize i'm just going to go around in circles uh because of of my um my uh, brachial plexus injury. So, uh, sailing was sort of that way for me to be competitive again. And, you know, you're a runner, you know, you may not be an Olympian, but you're a runner. Like that competitive feeling for some people is really, really important to, to tap into because that might be inherently a little bit of who they are. And you can be competitive in your career and you can be competitive in other spaces, but there's really nothing like being to me, there's nothing like really being competitive in a, in a, in a, in a, in a sports arena. You know, for in my case, it's on the ocean or in a in a lake or in a bay or wherever you can sail. Um, but that's kind of how I found how I eventually ended up in in sailing. And I don't know the Paralympic thing was just in front of me, so why not? Why not give it a try? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You had mentioned after your injury, maybe struggling to find resources. Obviously, it's a lot different now than it was for a variety of reasons, yeah. but um, you've been working on a peer mentor program. I feel like the last mm-hmm. time we talked, um, maybe about a year ago, you had mentioned that you were just starting something. Um, do you want to maybe explain a little bit about what that is? Yeah, yeah, thank you for bringing mm-hmm. that up. I yeah. wasn't expecting that. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I really believe in the power of, of, of a peer. Um, I really believe that... Um, we learn best from other people's experiences. There's a lot of knowledge in that. There's a there's a a, um, a disability studies theorist uh, who is no longer um, on this planet, um, named Tobin Siebers, who talks about um, complex embodiment, which is looking at like how all humans we, we have many identities, and uh, you know when you look at disability, um, which identities are present in what spaces you know, and, and what does that mean? And in that, in, in all of that inherently is, is also the, the, um, the knowledge that you develop over time as a disabled person figuring it's an art, it's, it's a way to live, um, 
you know, ingeniously because you're constantly solving problems and you're constantly navigating spaces that weren't made for you and you get really good at it. And there's a lot of knowledge in that and that you want to pass down. Uh, so um, I, I've been a part of this research team looking at what if we take peer mentors and in this case, these are peer mentors with spinal cord injury, people who have been trained to mentor, and then we put them through more training of how to be a health coach. Uh, so uh, over, and, and we've researched this, we're in our third iteration, iteration now of looking at, uh, we, we took people with spinal cord injuries, uh, they had to be, um, have been a peer mentor for five years and uh, want to become a coach. And then we go through about 90, 90 some odd hours of training um, in motivational interviewing, in um, uh, trauma-informed care, in, how, in, in health management, you know, all kinds of spaces. And then we, uh, these people get certified in something called brief action planning, which has a motivational interviewing um, base. It's, evidence, uh, it's evidence-based and sh is shown to work. It was developed for... Uh, to be in the clinical, to be used in a clinical setting of, you know, a way to engage with people and um, help people, help patients set goals that are, that they can actually achieve. Um, and so that's what, and, and, and coaching can happen the way we do this coaching is all through Zoom so that you eliminate the uh, having to travel somewhere. You eliminate so many barriers that are experienced by those with spinal cord injury, those uh, that so I can meet with somebody and talk to them like like you and I are talking right now and you can coach me and, and coach me through some of the challenges and you as someone with let's say you have a spinal cord injury you've had pressure sores before maybe and so you know what it's like to navigate some of that and can support people with resources and information and education and just hacks you might have um, and so I really believe that that someone and so we call them um, SCI PHC, so spinal cord injury peer health coaches. And it's like a community health worker, but sort of it's, it's kind of in that same vein. And what we're trying to do, what I eventually want to do is make this something that somebody can be paid for as a professional, as a, as a member of a healthcare team. Why not have a trained person who is also a peer who can who can help the healthcare team understand maybe where this person is right now in in their whatever health situation they have. I, I really believe in this. I've been researching it, like I said, since 2014 maybe. And um, and now our ne our, our, we've done this with uh, working with people who have been injured past five years. And um, we found big benefits in that five to 10 year frame. Uh, time frame for people, and we even can help people at any time. You, anybody can benefit from a coach and from a health coach. And what we're doing next is we're going to be working with people who have been from from point of injury to, to uh, two years out, so that oh, three years out, so the first three years, which is the one of the more challenging uh, times after you've acquired a disability when you're trying to still figure out your stuff. So uh, stay tuned. Um, I'm excited to see what's going to come of that, but I'm, I'm, I just think that there's a space for this, in, certainly in our healthcare system now, and I think connecting with peers is just a really powerful thing. Yeah, I think the lived experience piece is essential. When I when I did a podcast with a friend of mine, John, uh, who has an SCI as well, he was like, mm -hmm. yeah, I learned everything from YouTube. 
uh, I was just YouTubing things, right. and he was like, that was my best education. And I was like, wow. So, yeah. I mean, to, yeah. Right now you have, and, and it's not, it's, it's not, it's nobody's fault. I want to be careful here. It's nobody's fault, but our system is weird. We learn how to be disabled from non-disabled people. Yeah. That's the model. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, I could never speak on the lived experience of, of what uh, you encounter on a day-to-day basis. I can only yeah. like try to learn and support you in that regard. Right. Um I, so the the peer mentor model is between two individuals with SEI. Um, would you ever not want to be around other people with SEIs? Like after your injury, do you think there's some people that don't want to associate oh, with yes. the community? And like, how do you navigate that relationship of people that are resistant to support? Well, I think that uh, most people, after they initially experience a spinal cord injury, uh, they're they're looking on the internet, they're looking everywhere, their friends and family and everybody they know is out there scouring the internet looking for the cure, right? And, and, and because it's so ever-present and people talking about it, it can really become the main focus of somebody. When am I walking again? When am I walking again? When am I walking again? And um, I used to go in and visit people at, at, you know, while they were in like inpatient rehab. Um, and be, I was a peer mentor in that space. I have been for a long time, and I've ha- I had to stop because all people, nobody wanted the the person with the new spinal cord injury did not want to see me because to them, and understandably because of the messaging of the world, uh, to them I was a failure. I'm in a wheelchair. I am I am not I am not at all what somebody wants to be. They want to be walking out of here, and 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 there's that. You know, denial is a really, really important part of managing trauma. Um, at some point, you have to work through that. But um, I think it's easier to focus on something that maybe you understand than something you don't. So somebody who has been walking and then can no longer walk, they want to walk again. That's what they see as as the point of all of this, not live again. And um, and that's the messaging that you get is is like we were talking about with the measurements of, well, you have to get all, you know, all you have to get return, muscle return in all the areas. And that is going to allow you to be an independent person. And, um, and I, I don't, I don't believe that. Um, and so I think it's just this, it's this navigation. Anyway, um, I got, I became a burned out peer mentor because I couldn't talk about walking anymore. Now, who did want to talk to me when I would go into the hospital setting? Family, friends, anybody who was able-bodied and connected to this person who was like, wait a minute, how did you get here? I drove. You can drive? Like, yeah, it's not rocket science and it has been around, hand controls have been around for a long time. I am not amazing. Believe me. Uh, But that is like, I didn't know you could drive or, you know, what kind of, you know, most people, unless you are in the world, you see wheelchairs very differently. Like you, Brendan, know when you see, you know, like, whoa, that's a titanium chair. And I know why you have all these parts to it, right? Because you, you understand all this. The, the general public doesn't know that there's a difference between wheelchairs, that hospital wheelchairs are ridiculous and you need a lightweight chair to get around. Like people just don't see those things. Like 
like I do, like like those of us who use them every day see them. Um, so I, I think I think that um, what's nice about being this peer health coach, this peer health coach role, is really nice for people like me who want to support people in learning how to manage their spinal cord injuries better. But we just want to stop talking about things that that nobody can do anything about right now, like. What you can do something about, I, I can't say, you know, my, my PT, my, my, I had a really great PT in, um, in rehab, and she used to say, I don't have a crystal ball. I really don't. And so I have no idea what the outcome of any of this is going to be. But what I do know is what is going on right now. And what we can focus on right now are these things. You know, we can focus on transferring. We can focus on getting stronger. We can focus on learning how to propel your chair better. You know, those kinds of things that are going to help me in my day-to-day life. Um, so, um, yeah, so the question you asked me, I've gone far from, I know, but I do think that, uh, the, the, this peer health coach role is a nice space for lots of people who are, who are tired of talking about walking and want to talk about living. Yeah. I want to go far from the prompts. So, um, I'm just here to listen to you, <laughs> you talk. That's, that's the general idea. I'm um, hoping I'm giving you something that's worthwhile, Brendan. Absolutely. You are, um, you have a publication on the relationship between loneliness and health outcomes. So I think like something like this, and it's not exclusive to the SEI population. I'm sure no. we can look at any population with or without a disability and probably, um, yes. have a, find a correlation between the two. So, um, I guess maybe that's why I think the type of inclusive like training environment that we've created here in Massachusetts is important. Yes. Um, Vitally, vitally. But I wonder like, so your model is between multiple people with SEI. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I'm trying to push a model where it's people with and without disabilities seamlessly coexisting. Yes. Is, is an environment that only trains people with disabilities or one type of disabilities inherently inclusive? Or do you think you need the incorporation of people without disabilities as well? I like that. I actually think, well, I, I think you could do either. I like it with everybody together. You know, the gyms that I've gone to in my, I don't have a gym right now, but when I, when I've found gyms, they have been gyms that are fully, that are inclusive where I see all kinds of people and they see me. Uh, because there's inherently education going on. As long as I'm able to say to somebody, let's 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 calm down on the inspiration porn here. Um, I showed up here because it's accessible, and I'm a, I want to work out. Having a spinal cord injury doesn't make me inspiring. It makes me uh, need to be able. I have different needs than you do, and how I'm going to work out. But it it doesn't affect the fact that I don't want to still be fit. Not everybody's spinal cord injury wants to be fit, by the way. So anyway, I think, I think as many, I, I'm a big believer in diversity. I think it's a superpower. I think we have it all. Uh, some people have it all wrong. I think there's multiple ways of solving a problem. And when you get input from all the people involved, you're going to, you're going to create a sustainable solution versus one that's only going to last for a moment or, you know, a couple of weeks or whatever. So I think the way you are going, this is one of the reasons I really want to continue supporting you in your work is it's, it's, it's ground, it's, it's innovative. Um, and you don't see it like that, but it is, and it needs, that's the model to me. That's the model. I think this coaching thing is more of just a one-on-one. How am I going to get through to do the things I want to do? 
And how, do I, how am I going to do that? How am I going to navigate these potential health challenges in my life uh, and, and so that I can move forward and do what I want, um, whatever that might be. And, and I think that, that that's different than going to a place because I might, during a coaching session, I might talk to somebody about going to a gym. You know, have you ever thought about going to a gym? You know, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if they know what I'm doing and I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know, you know, all these potential barriers that are that are real, not just imagined, but they are also imagined. Um, you know, coming to your your fitness center, nobody has those, like everything's accessible, so there's no questions there. And you know what to do when somebody does show up. You understand that how to help them or how to teach them what, you know, to use the equipment or whatever. So I like, you know, it's like all the adaptive sport experiences that I have. You know, I like to ski, but I don't want to ski on a on a disabled mountain with disabled people, you know, like, I don't even know what that looks like, but I, I want to go ski at uh, Bretton Woods and I, I and I want to ski with all the people here and I want to get on all the lifts and why not? They're here for me. And, and then I'm skiing with people and they're skiing with me. And I think there's a lot of power in that. Yeah. And that's, and that's really only one of the, one of the only means of educating general population as a whole as to what people with disabilities can do. So it kind of reframes their expectations. And, and I think it makes you more approachable. I think, and, and this is true time and time again in my life, when I appear in a wheelchair, everybody runs away from me. When I appear in my hand cycle, when I appear in my sit ski, when I, when people see me using the equipment I use when I sail now, it's like, whoa, you do this too. How do you do it? And now, now it's like, it's like a visual representation of the fact that we have something in common. Yeah, Spartan recreation can be so powerful. Think, yeah. yeah, a lot of people don't think that they see somebody sitting in a wheelchair, see somebody with any, any visible disability, let's say, and like, oh, that's not me. Or in fact, oh my God, I hope that's never me. That's what people think when they see me, you know? Oh my God, what happened? Uh, was I born like this? Um, oh, there's always, can I have sex? Uh, and, you know, you know, those are the major questions of, pe- of able-bodied people. Um, and, and it's always fascinating, but it's, it's the truth. And um, I think when you can see that you actually have something in common with someone, it breaks down that really big barrier of you're really different than me and I'm never going to get you. Yeah. Yeah, I remember a couple of years ago you had mentioned in one of our conversations and I probably only remember it because it was confirmation bias for me at the time but you you mentioned that you were you almost preferred to work with personal trainers instead of physical therapists and in some ways um what do you think is the line to like not to cross between what a personal trainer can do and what a physical therapist can do Ooh, that's a good question, especially in today's world where you have personal trainers who have all kinds of experience behind them. I, I think I think the the I think if you're dealing with a uh, a condition that your the trainer doesn't quite understand, like you know how far can I push your shoulder? You know, a trainer would be like, "We're going as much as we can," right? But but maybe for me. Uh, that isn't, I used to, when I was in my Paralympic campaigns, I used to go see this awesome trainer, but he would train me to the point where I literally couldn't drive home after, after working out. I couldn't drive home. I had to sit for a half hour and recover before I was strong enough again to drive. 
you know, that's probably on the edge, you know, for, for an Olympic athlete, that's not on the edge at all. That's to me, in my mind, that's standard, but, but in my life now, I couldn't go see somebody who's going to push me that much because I may not be able to do the things I need to do in my life that day. Um, and so I think trainers don't always understand that. Uh, and there's no knock on trainers, by the way, I'm not trying to create an us and them world. Um, I think a physical therapist might understand that more, but they may never push you hard enough as a result, right? So I think, I think it's up to the person, what they, what they prefer, who they prefer like working with. Of course, there's always the insurance factor, um, but I think healthcare is very limiting to those practicing healthcare now. You're only allowed 15 minutes or whatever with a physical therapist, and, and you're never you're going to work with all the assistants and everybody else while they're supervising other people. You have a trainer; they're with you. They're with you. They are training you. They're with you for that full hour or whatever that session time is, and get to know you better and can develop this really powerful relationship. So I have better relationships with all the people that trained me than I do with with. Yeah, care. and then I just I just don't want disability to be continuously synonymous with injury, which it seems right. to be the case right. when like only physical therapists work with people with disabilities. And like you mentioned before, yeah. you don't you don't want to be a patient forever. Like how motivating no. is that to go to PT and do your rehab exercises? Right, exactly. Yeah, so. I don't want to spend my life in a gym uh, of a of a with with a, a therapy gym. Yeah. You know, I would prefer to spend my time in a gym gym, like where I'm making my choices and making and, and doing the things I want to do to get myself stronger. So I, I just think there's a point where you have to stop being a patient and you really have to move on and be a person. And the whole point of therapy is to prepare you for being in the community. And that's where you are. You are in the community out there saying, I am here. And maybe maybe that would be a goal that somebody who's newly has, a, let's say, a spinal cord injury and they want, you know, they're still an inpatient and maybe then they they come home and they have to be an outpatient for a while but their goal might be to be i want to go to unified health you know i, I want to go there yeah. and uh and what a great goal for therapy and then now you're ready and you can be discharged from that and come into a place where you feel like a human right. not a patient yeah and you're focusing on what you can do instead of what yeah, you can't you can, yeah. and not only that but you're out in your world living your world and you're coming across the things you know in a in a rehab setting everything's kind of accessible and the, the you know it's all like linoleum floors and you know things are there's bars and there's not always where they're supposed to be but at least they're there and um and and in the real world none of that stuff is there and so you have to navigate if you want to be out in the real world you have to learn how to navigate some structural inaccessibility and i think that's what a trainer can help somebody do yeah More uh, than yeah, and I, I always like collaborating with the clients, like medical yeah. team. So we'll get like, we got a client about a year ago, post-heart transplant. So I'm emailing with his pulmonary therapist from Spalding yeah. and asking her kind of how she sees the recovery going. And mm -hmm. after a little while, she's like, all right, yeah, it's up to you. And I'm like, oh, all right, I guess we'll, I guess we'll, just, we'll just keep going with what I think. So, um, but I'm also interested in, like, as we teach personal trainers and strength and condition coaches how to work with adaptive populations, like how I'm very interested in how I can measure 
that they've acquired and are able to apply the information. And I know I was reading something about your course at Brown and how you don't have a final exam. You have a community impact project. And Mm -hmm. I'm just really interested in, I guess, assessment of learning and um, application of learning. Because, I mean, I want more gyms like mine to exist, but I'm not too naive to assume that someone can just take my online course and be ready to go. This is a dozen years of working with hundreds of people with disabilities and that that portion is missed in the online learning so I'm not sure if I'm going to espouse like oh personal trainers can work with people with disabilities like I want to make sure I'm sending them to the right people and the qualified people and like you said that know how to work with the adaptive population so I'm not sure exactly how to gauge that or measure that. Yeah, and it's not fair for you to try to measure it by then looking at the people who have taken your course and then seeing who has set something up. You know, who has made a gym that's like mine of these people that have taken my course? That's going to be um, really unfair to you because that there's so many other other factors that are involved in setting up a gym. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and I think you're right. That is a really interesting um, thing. I wonder if you could also though, measure um, attitude change of who are the clients I can see now. I thought I only had, I mean, think about this from market. I know you always think about this from a marketing perspective, which I love about you, Brendan, because you see disabled people as a market. And we are a market, but the rest of the world doesn't see us as a market because they see us as charity cases or as like, oh, well, you do that for free, right? And it's like, well, no. Why would you offer this for free? Like, no, these are my services. I'm a trained professional. No, it's not free. Um, there's value here, but um, I, I, I think that um, to me, in general, accessi- uh, the accessibility is more of an attitude. And what I mean by that is um, thinking about, of course, you can get there, right? If that's your baseline of, of course, you can get there, you're going to help somebody problem solve how to get there wherever there is, right? And I think there's a lot of value in that because so many people are like, well, this is what you have. Good luck and walk away like that cardiologist said. You know, like, well, it's up to you now or the pulmonologist or whoever it was. And, and, I, and I, I, you know, basically like, oh, my job is done here. Um, and, and that's kind of the goal of healthcare is to discharge you, right? But that isn't the goal of a, of a um, fitness professional. The, the goal of a fitness professional is to keep people coming so they, they maintain or improve their strength, their fitness, their agility, their whatever they're working on, right? And, um, and so I, I do see some differences in those spaces, too, of um, healthcare provider, there's an end. Trainer, there's no end. Yeah, that's that's interesting perspective. I hadn't really... I hadn't really considered because I think I was using how many programs like mine exist as a measuring stick to the efficacy of a course that I'm teaching. And so now we're almost considering like, oh, do I just do I need to open more gyms like that? That wasn't the avenue that I wanted to go. That's why I made the course in the first place, because I didn't want to own a bunch of gyms. I want to help people run more inclusive programs. But I'm like, I'm teaching this class like a few hundred people have taken it and I haven't quite found another gym like mine yet that's existed i'm like okay maybe i just have to keep going but then we apply then we apply for grants and they want to see an impact and so i'm like okay a few hundred people have taken my course that's not really an impact though that's a business uh thing for me but it's not showing how many people with disabilities benefit 
from my course, which is what the ultimate goal is. Um, but I I'm think, think yeah. about that. I'm not going to solve the problem during this podcast, <laughs> but I really want to think about that. Yeah. Maybe we can get another deck student for you. I'm, I'm always open to uh, working on That's projects. That's a really like interesting that. project, but I think there's things you could already do that would show what. And I'll have, I want to think on that because I do think that 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 is by looking at the gyms that have been. I mean, you're you're looking. That's that's really tough for you to show impact in that way. Mm-hmm. I think you could show impact in quickly as a result of this course. You could look at attitudes of people. You could have them take something pre, and you could have them take something post the actual course. Yeah. That would show. Uh, probably what they've learned, but but and then maybe you could contact those people a year later and and ask some more questions that are a little more um, attached to the training that you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That versus that big end product of who's running a gym like me, like yeah. like you said, like there's a lot that goes into that. Yeah, I want to improve our pre and post confidence uh, surveys. We have some stuff in there, but um, it could definitely benefit from being more valid and reliable as a scale. Um, and just like, I mean, when we teach a course, so YMCA, a YMCA is a completely different model than my gym. Uh, yeah. So it's like, that they're, I don't, they're never going to look like mine, but that doesn't mean they necessarily have to. I, I, right. meet, I meet with a couple uh, Massachusetts and New Hampshire branches on Friday to talk about like ha- having a select few, and they've already had 50 plus trainers take the course, but we're trying to identify like a few that are more motivated in this area and then seeing how many people with disabilities they currently have in membership and then how many they can get with some more concerted efforts of recruiting and relationship yeah. building with community programs. So um, right. that, that will be an interesting project to just kind of see how it can influence like the YMCAs, which are perfect because they already have they are. a price point to be accessible, yes. a mission to be accessible. So they yes. are, they are really the perfect partner for me. It's just like, I guess I might have to dissociate from like, it has to look like my gym. It doesn't have to look like my gym. Um, yeah. Just people with disabilities just have to benefit from it. I know the Quincy Y has, I've never been there. I know they have a big program. Um, and I know, and, and other than that, I know about, you know, the Shirley Ryan center out in Chicago, um, used to be the rehabilitate rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, but now it's called the Shirley Ryan center. Yeah. They have a very big, uh, uh, open gym where you have, uh, you know, patients are going there all the time, right? So they get, they can use it. They can use it after their discharge, just belong and go work out there, but also are the doctors and the nurses and the therapists and the administrative people and all the people that work there. So, no, I don't think there's anything like what you have, but I think there's bits and pieces of it, and maybe the goal is more to figure out what are the bits and pieces that need to be in place for this to happen. And like you pointed out, one of those things is access to people. And it's fascinating to me um, how few people are, I'm not marketed to. No one contacts me and says, you know, hey, I've got this accessible gym. Do you want to come? Like when you, when you watch uh, the fitness, those ads um, for like the big fitness centers, you know, the 24-hour gyms and all those places, you don't see you don't see wheelchair users in those spaces. And so as a wheelchair user, I'm like, well, I don't think I can go in there and use that equipment. So that's off to me. And I only can go to therapy and I only can go to these because that's what's designed for me. And, and that isn't the case. So I think it's more of a marketing issue um, in, in some ways. And um, anyway, I think it's a, it's a really fun problem to try to solve. 
and address. But I think the biggest thing in my mind is getting people with disabilities to believe that they belong in a gym. Yeah, that's, and I'm not conceited enough to say that, like, oh, my model is the model that I need everyone to abide by. It's just, it's just bad. It's it's just a model. It's what I know. It's what we've done. It's what you've been building. And it's evolved over time. What it was five years ago probably shouldn't be um, what I'm teaching now. And so that's why the continual evolution of it's important. Yeah, Um, but I think what you're doing is, with this course is awesome. And I think there are, uh, you're, you're at least opening up minds and I think you might want to measure more of those things because you can measure that. You can look at how did my course change the way this person approaches fitness yeah. with different populations. Yeah. The marketing piece you mentioned is tough because sometimes it feels like you're almost exploiting someone's disability. Um, like you need to choose a physical one. I have clients with autism, right. intellectual right. disabilities that yep. get shared on our feeds and you would never know um, that they have that unless I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, look at this autistic athlete. Um, I'm never going to put that in a caption. So mm-hmm. it's like how, I guess, how can you market to the population without exploiting or overemphasizing the fact that you're inclusive uh, is a challenge as well? Well, I think it's a challenge, especially because uh, I think you have to, that's when you go back to your membership and you ask them, what, what does exploiting look like to you? Mm-hmm. Uh, because again, some people like me, want to promote what you're doing you know we want to say this guy gets it he is working really hard to make sure everybody is included in in fitness and everybody should have access that's a that's a an an in you know is that a right to some is that a you know inherent right that we all have to be able to move um anyway uh I don't want to get into that. I'm not a Greek philosopher, but um, yeah, I think it's, we still haven't discovered, this is still an issue, right? Nobody has discovered the exact formula of how to get, you know, for every one person you see out in the community with a disability, there's, there's 10 at home, not going anywhere because they don't think they can, or they can't for whatever reason. So it's, Collectively, a societal issue, you know, I I always think about disability as the last form of of diversity that we have yet to fully embrace. Um, And it's that final frontier of, you know, people don't think about disability as diversity, but but it is. And it's the largest, you know, one in one in what, 26% of the population, anywhere from 20 to 26, depending on what data set you're looking at, um, lives with a disability. That's a large part of our population in the U.S. So there should be lots of opportunity. It's just people have decided that we aren't we are not marketable. Yeah. Yeah. And I know in like even in Jetty's paper, um, he cites a study from um, that, that just showed that like only half of physicians would welcome people with disabilities into their clinics yes. and like 80% report that they assume that someone with a disability has a worse life. And uh, yep. those those statistics are among the most educated of the people in the world. So like, how can we expect those that haven't even gone to those lengths of education to have high expectations for people with disabilities? Um, Kind of what you had mentioned earlier about rec, like you going out and skiing alongside people without and showing them and kind of facilitating those conversations seems to be a really important way to do it. But sometimes the, the challenge in front of us seems overwhelming in terms of the scope. Um, yeah. 
but yeah and i like i tell i tell um i i get to work with these really wonderful young people these students and everybody wants to change the world and i love that but you can only change your little you have to start in your corner and you have to start in your little space you can't change everything uh you have to be a part of that right a part of the push for change and um you know you've been leading you've been leading the fight for a long time and and it's so great that that you are being rewarded for that you know so many people they try and maybe it doesn't work and then they get frustrated and just kind of stop and i know um that that can make sense to people like you people just don't want this and it's like no us people do want it we just need to be we've never been told that we can and it's only people like me who have had so much privilege and so much opportunity to know that i can do this so i go out and seek it but that's because of of all the things i can do that i have access to somebody else who never knew this was available uh it has a has a much more challenging time of, of figuring out what it what it can look like in their lives so i'm i'm not i i think that i might be biased a little bit by my experiences of of course you can but but not everybody can uh but once they once you do access it it's like why you know you always hear that i always hear this from from people with disabilities like i don't know why i didn't do this sooner i don't know why you know once you get them actually doing it and you know some getting somebody on a sailboat for the first time or getting somebody skiing for the first time like i love that because you get to see that like mind blown like oh my god i didn't realize i could do this i can do this oh my god and then families around them like oh we can do this as a family we can go skiing like i didn't know we could do this you know and the possibilities that's what health promotion is right it's it's being open it's possibility and and the opportunities of possibilities and um yeah yeah when when dennis was with us senior year and he was doing his initial practicum with us through umass lowell for his exercise science degree and when he first told me he was going into ot i was like Oh, that was interesting. Most of the most of our practicum students go into physical therapy. Yep. Um, why do why do you think some people go into PT versus OT, and what are the different environments, and uh, what are the different goals? I guess. Yeah, you know, when I was uh, when I I didn't know about OT when I was all PT minded because OT it's interesting and it, uh, I'm not going to get into the politics of it because it, it's long and extended, but. Um, you know, back when I was in rehab, there was always this battle between what PTs did and what OTs did, and you can't cross over and you can't do this. You can, you know, drinking water is an OT activity, but walking to the water fountain is a PT activity. And like all this breaking up of body parts and people and saying, well, this goes here and that goes there. And I'm like, well, who puts it all together? <laughs> um, so I think what physical therapists do is work on somebody's physical abilities. Um, and what occupational therapists tend to do is look at what activities are meaningful to you or, or what are the activities of daily living that you have to do. Like you have to, you know, most people get dressed in the morning or, or get dressed at some point during the day. Not everybody gets dressed in a suit, but you put on some kind of clothing or, um, you know, eating. Can you eat, you know, uh, all those things. So OTs sort of are more in that um, physical therapists may help with the 
the strength and the range of motion. Um, it seems like in this world we have a, it's sort of separated and like PTs take the from the you know waist down and OTs take upper extremities. You know, um, I don't even think that's necessarily the case, but that's sort of where they have divided themselves. And so you can see OTs, clinic, you know, clinicians working in, in you know hand therapists like what Dennis. Um, likes, you know, some people really love working with hands and wrists and, and elbows and shoulders. Um, and OTs can do that clinically, or they can work in, you know, they can work in, uh, mental health and, uh, they can work with kids with, um, ASD and working on sensory processing. Um, they can do all kinds of other things sort of that help you do what you want to do. So I, I kind of look at basically should should be working in conjunction should be working with with each other ideally when they work together uh, with physical therapists you can really work on the thing getting that person strong and capable to do what they want to do um, so I, I kind of see those as the differences I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who would say well I would say this and I would say that and you know I'm sure I'm, I'm missing some things but you know fine motor skills with your hand and things like that but um, like like I had carpal tunnel uh, issues, obviously, because I've had the use of my my one functional hand for 20, 34 years. So obviously something's going to happen. So I had um, uh, surgery on it and I saw an OT because I wanted to see a hand therapist so that they could get my wrist and hand uh, functioning again. After that, I saw I went back to my trainer. And worked with him. Now, some physical therapists work in that space too, but um, I just—that's the path I took with with rehabbing from my wrist. Um, I just—I tend to try to avoid clinical medical experiences as much as possible because I don't like being medicalized, and I don't like being limited, and I don't like entering into spaces that are not designed for me. And it's fascinating to see the number of physician offices and practices that are not accessible, don't have a bathroom I can use, don't have uh, a table I can use, don't have pretty much anything that that I can use in my recovery. Is there a database of what offices and stuff do? How do, how do you find <laughs> the appropriate ones? Trial and error, Trial unfortunately. And error, yeah, yeah. Or like, I'll dr- I literally will drive by places like does that look I can get in? You know, because I don't want to have that experience of being late for an appointment because I couldn't get in. That has happened to me many times, and um, it's very frustrating, and um, you end up getting kicked out of the practice if you don't show up enough times. Uh, so I tend to, I, I'm different maybe in a lot of ways. Like I tend to try to avoid as many medical interactions as I, as I, as I can, yeah. and I prefer to work with regular humans as much as possible. Because a, a physician, yes, they're educated, highly educated, but highly educated in one thing. Right. Yeah. And that is how a standard body works. That's what they learn. Yeah, yeah that's tough. I had a high school student come to the gym last week, and um, I think this year she was introduced to like a unified PE class um, and really uh, grasped it and really loved it. And that was actually a similar experience to kind of how I got into this in the first place with unified sports. But, um, she was asking like, Oh, how do I, I think she wants to pursue health sciences next year at the university where she's playing lacrosse. And she's like, should I go to PT? Should I go to OT? Should I become an athletic trainer? Uh, she's like, what'd you do to get here? And I'm like, uh, I'm like, well, I studied special ed and then I went into this, this and that. Um, and there's really no, 
one path and I found myself yeah. I found myself struggling to guide her not that it was my responsibility to guide her but offer any suggestions that I felt had any substance in terms of like what direction she should go and outside of accumulate as many experiences as possible I think that's the way to do it you know I initially uh, where I went to University of Virginia as you said and they didn't have a PT program there and I didn't know I wanted to be a physical therapist when I entered school and and I thought I wanted I don't know I was like some 18 year old I just wanted to go to Virginia and swim um, and and medicine I, I, I knew I wanted to learn about the body I just didn't know what because I was 18 and um, I, I then was like you know being an because I you know inherently if you're an athlete you, you end up in the training room um, if you're doing it I mean, back then, I, I think th- things are so different now, Brendan, than when I was a, a student athlete. Thank God. They're much better, much, 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 much better. But um, so I would go to the training room. And I'm like, well, this is kind of cool. I wonder if, if I if I want to be this. And I could I could take classes in athletic training. It was an option at that school. And I was I did my internships. I was in there taping ankles and and I was, it was a very male dominated world at the time. And a lot of, as a woman, even the athletes were like, you can't tape my, there's no way. I don't want you taping my ankle. Well, why? Cause, cause you're a woman. Cause you could say that then <laughs> in, in 1988. Uh, and I'd be like, really? Okay. And then I'd tape the shit out of their ankle <laughs> and excuse my language. And they would, um, the heck out of their ankle. <laughs> and then they'd be like, oh, you're stronger than you look. And we're like. Yeah, don't mess with me. Um, but but I, I then back then it was very male dominated, and I was like, I really like the work. I don't like the environment. So I needed to experience that. And then I went to that PT, you know, worked at the hospital. And I was like, ooh, I really like this, you know. And I had never had the opportunity work to work in a community based setting because that would have been like everything for me because I'm a big community based person, as you can tell, and because um, that's where we should be out in the community. What do, you think, what do you think needs to be done to make the fitness industry or recreation more accessible? I think more classes like what you're doing. I think the continuous, like, I think there's a good movement ahead. And, you know, I'm not a social media person, but I think there's a, there's a lot. That's one of the things, like you said, your friend learned everything that they did about spinal cord injury from YouTube videos of people living with spinal cord injury talking about what they do. I think you can get a lot of information. I think it's dangerous because there can be some mis- mis- misinformation out there, but I don't know if it's any more dangerous than in a clinical environment. Um, so I think just the more people we have talking about this stuff uh, and doing it, the more it's going to get the, the more people's expectations are going to sort of change, you know, um, it to, uh, you know, you go into your gym, I'm sure, I'm sure the people that initially when you have, you know, all your able-bodied members come in, they're like, wow, look at all this. At first they must be like, whoa, because that's kind of how able-bodied people react if they have never been exposed to this. That's not their fault. It's just the way our society has, has, uh, set everyone up. <laughs> um, and that after time, I'm sure in your gym, it's like, oh, yeah, it's just these people. And I see them as people and not as anything special. And, and you're, hey, you're getting stronger today or whatever, you know, and, and you, you get more of a us and us world, not an us and them world. And I think the more we continue pushing the us and us world, especially in adaptive sport and fitness, the more 
and not make it this specialty of, well, you have to have a special ed background, for example. Like, I don't even like the term special ed. Like, it's neither special. <laughs> I wouldn't say, you know, you have special and you have gifted. Which one in your world do you want to be, right? The way we hierarchize all of this. Um, but anyway, I've, I've detracted again from the original question. But um, I think it's a slow process to change to change minds. But I think once you do it, you create almost um, little minions of people that are like, that are really passionate about this. I'm sure there are people that go through your class who are like, oh my gosh, I had no idea this was all here. I'm so excited. And you might get some other people that are like, this is really helpful. I don't know if it's for me. You know, obviously you can't push everybody into that space, but you can at least expose. And so I think the most, the more exposure, the better. Yeah, the expectations is an important thing. And that's where I like sometimes feel like such a like a pessimist and a curmudgeon. But like I'm sometimes annoyed when I see people praising the rudimentary tasks. You mentioned inspiration porn. It's a topic that we've talked about uh, ad nauseum yeah. on the podcast with the various <laughs> guests. But like uh, that stuff does, I think it does more harm than good. Um, when yes, I see like when I see someone with Down syndrome and a trainer post a video of them performing really bad push-ups or really bad squats right. when the client would be perfectly capable of doing uh, better with some proper instruction, and then everyone in the comments is like, "Wow, this is so great! Uh, you're incredible!" Referencing the trainer, not even referencing the athlete. That stuff's exactly. like, and that's always been so uncomfortable for me every time I. Every time I post something and the comments get directed at me instead of the athlete, the athlete. Uh, it's so great that you do this for the kids. It's like, yeah. no, that, that's that's not what I'm trying to show. So that kind of goes back to the challenges yeah. of marketing and exploitation and stuff. And right. Um, right. yeah, I think it's never ill-intentioned when people uh, no no when, no, no when people say like, oh, that's great, like it's so awesome that you're doing that, but yep. it's it's tough because I know it means that we're stuck in this certain level of expectation. I get equally as frustrated, Brendan. Maybe that's why uh, we get along so well. <laughs> yes. But but I I think that it, it can drive you. It, I believe I've had an up and down space in all of that. You know, of do I want to be a part of this? Do I not? You know, I I, uh, I made a decision along. Oh, let's see. It was it was when I went to graduate school. When I went to graduate school, I didn't want to, you know, I, I was, I'd been injured for like, I'd had my spinal cord. I'm not injured anymore. I need to be clear about that. I, I live with something called a spinal cord injury. I'm not injured. But just because I, just because I am one doesn't mean I want to be in this world. So I, I definitely had a, a, a moment with myself where I was like, do I want to continue working in disability or do I want to work outside of that? And my my thesis project was developing a bicycle safety video for um, for middle school age kids on wearing helmets. It was called um, Helmet in a Jar, and, um, or Jello in a Jar. That's right. I named it Jello in a Jar, and it was used by the National Safe Kids Campaign, which is this big unintentional injury um, prevention organization, childhood injury prevention organization. And I thought that's what I wanted to do was because I was I bought into all this like you don't want to get, you don't want to be, have a disability. So this is, you know, obviously bicycle safety matters. Um, I'm alive because of a helmet. So I, I believe strongly in helmets. And anyway, I did that, but it wasn't as satisfying as when I, um, you know, one of the other projects I did was I developed an entire health curriculum for people with spinal cord injuries. This was in 1993. There wasn't anything like that. Nobody was talking about health promotion and disability. So I didn't have anybody 
to mentor me through the next phase of what that could look like. So I had to take on, um, and I think in the end, now that I think about it, it's because of academic ableism and nobody saw my, what I wanted to do as valuable because nobody was talking about healthy disabled people. They were just talking about preventing disability. Um, and I was more like, well, we're not going to prevent us. You know, eugenics didn't work. It's never going to work. So what do we do with all these people that are here and can't we make them, can't they become healthier? Of course they can, but there was nobody that was there to support more academic pursuit. So I ended up going into nonprofit and going in this, like, I do want to work with disability. So it was an evolution for me as somebody living with disability to decide, is this the world I want to be in? And, and it, was, it was because I didn't want that, that you're amazing. You're amazing because you showed up here. And I'm like, I shouldn't be amazing because I showed up. It shouldn't be amazing Brendan, that, that I can teach college. It shouldn't be that, that students have never been taught by somebody. It shouldn't be that, that you are the only access to um, adaptive phys ed education for people. You know, it, It's just the way it is right now. And, and these are the things we have to trust that as we keep moving forward, um, this is going to become a bigger movement. And it has, because I can tell you, when I started, this wasn't even an option, what you're doing wasn't even an option. And, and now it's becoming something. And I just feel like time ticks and everybody has their own um, concept of time. But I believe we have to trust that moving forward, as long as you keep the ball moving forward, it's going to keep moving forward. And it may not look like what you want it to look like at the end, but it may look like something you never expected also at the end. And I don't even know what the end looks like, by the way. I hope we never get to the end. Well, I think what you're doing is amazing because you've, I mean, you've built a curriculum similar to kind of what I aspire to do. You've educated, same thing, what I aspire to do. And uh, I never got the opportunity to go into higher ed. I, I shouldn't say I never got the opportunity. I, cho- I chose not to because at the time there wasn't really any incentive for me to have a, a master's right. degree in the private sector. You kind of dictate right. what you want. And I, I'm not even sure if there would have been an adaptive exercise science masters I could have even really pursued so it was kind of up to me to read as much as I could kind of like the self-guided uh education that I had for the first few years and I think it was it was encouraged by my um being terrified of not having an answer for someone um and I think that that was a motivation that was really strong uh, and I think it really led to a lot of of my learning was just this concern that I wasn't going to going to be able to help whoever came in through the door. So, um, yeah, like I, I think I say in the course that you're not expected to have all the answers, but you are expected to care enough to try to find the solutions. And I think if, um, like maybe just lowering that fear level for fitness professionals and, and giving them permission not to be negligent, but to take in this whole population that's currently not served, um, right. And you can start, maybe you don't have, maybe you don't have access for wheelchair users, but maybe that's something you work toward, but maybe you do have access for people with limb loss, or maybe you do have access to uh, the myriad and large population of people that you do, that, uh, that we in the disability community think of as hidden or um, invisible disability. You know, though, though, th- that pop- those populations of people need fitness just as much as everybody else. And you're not going to necessarily find them by saying, 
looking for people with MS who haven't yet, I don't have to use a wheelchair yet. You know, obviously you're never going to reach out to people like that, but you can, you can, um, working with the clients you already have, I think you can talk to them about what got them there, what they think would be a good way to market what you do. And, and you don't have to use all those ideas, but why not take the ideas? Like I said, of the, this diversity thing, like use it as a superpower. Like how would you promote this? Um, I think some you be. I think it's always surprising to hear that some people have really good ideas. They just have never been asked. I think that's a great way to wrap it up. As that kind of, I feel like that like summarizes a lot of of uh, what we talked about. Whether it's medical professionals interactions with people with disabilities or fitness professionals' role in making the industry more inclusive. Yeah. Um, Sarah it was uh, an honor to talk to. I, went for an hour and a half and probably could have gone for another hour easily. Uh, but I don't want to take up too much of your day. So thank you. Uh, thank you for doing this. And I really look forward to sharing this episode. Thank you, Brendan. I, I, I deeply, uh, appreciate our relationship and our, uh, you know, we are, we will continue to work together. I know. And it's because, uh, because of your, your leadership and your energy. And I value that highly. So thank you for having me. It's been an honor to be here. I hope I gave you something. Hope I gave you something worthwhile. Thank you for listening to the AdaptX podcast. Our effort to amplify the ideas of our guests and create more inclusive and accessible industries is futile unless these episodes reach a larger audience. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please leave us a rating or a review on whichever platform you use. And if you would like to learn more about AdaptX, the course that we teach to health and fitness professionals and the projects that our organization is working on, you can subscribe to our newsletter through our website, www.adaptx.org. Until next Monday.